when Todd and I were talking this past week about what it would mean to go to Kenya, I said, what are some of the rules you need to observe when you get there? What are some of the cultural aspects that might be different than they are here in Canada? And he didn't even miss a beat. He said, one of the things that has to happen is my wife, Peg, has to have her hair completely covered. And he said, if you walk around in Kenya as a woman with your hair uncovered, it's basically like walking naked here in Canada. I shared that with my wife and she goes, but Peg's hair is so beautiful. That's just not fair. One of the other things that Todd said to me is that when you greet somebody in the marketplace, you always start with the oldest woman first. Unlike in Canada or North America, where you typically start talking to the guy. And he said that if you talk to the guy rather than the woman, there would be great shame that's brought on the family. And you definitely don't want to do that. What are some of the other things that happen around the world? I was talking to one of my friends who's of Indian descent, and she said to me, when you're in India, you always greet people in the marketplace as auntie and uncle if they're older than you. It's just the way you do life together. And I was thinking about the different aspects that we are a part of. And last week, we looked at this idea of Jesus preaching on the Sermon on the Mount and how he started with kingdom values. The second part of this is he's going to talk about kingdom rules. What does it mean to be a part of the kingdom of God? How does that look different than everything we interact with here in Canada? Why don't we pray? Heavenly Father, thank you for this message of the Sermon on the Mount. And thank you that we get to see your teaching in such different ways. Last week, we looked at the kingdom values and what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God and how that's so different than world values. And today, as we cover a wide breadth of scripture, may we see how the rules play out and how they are good and beautiful and honoring unto you. God, we pray that my words would fall down, that your words would be lifted up, and as we cover numerous sections of the sermon, that that we would see what it is that you want to do in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open them up to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. And as we were unpacking what this sermon series might look like, we thought we can't cover every single passage in the book of Luke. It would just take too long. And so a couple people said to me, Dave, we want to give you the challenge of covering the whole Sermon on the Mount. So we'll see how it goes over the next half hour or so. But here's what you need to know. Jesus has um, now had a public ministry. He's been preaching. He's been casting out demons. He's been healing people. And so a whole crowd of people know that he was up on the mountainside and that they want to hear what he says when he comes back down. And so he comes down with his 12 apostles. He comes down with probably 70 to 100 disciples. And there's a huge multitude of people here. It's either the biggest or the second biggest crowd he's going to speak to in all of the book of Luke. There's Jews and there's Gentiles. Gentiles is anybody who's not a Jew. And they've heard about Jesus. They've heard about his teaching. They've heard about his preaching. And they want to know what's going to happen next. And so this is our passage today in Luke 6, picking up in verse 27 to 31. But I say to those of you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, so do to them. If you enjoy taking notes, we're going to start off with this. Embrace your enemies. 
And we look around and we see all these different cultures take place. We heard a little bit from Todd and Peg about what's going to take place in Kenya. And the Africans that I meet, they all seem to be so encouraging and so helpful. But if I were to say, talk to me about an Asian culture, you'd probably say, oh, well, they're very respectful. Talk to me about what Canada is like. And you'd say, oh, they're really polite. Talk to me about a German culture. And you'd say, oh, they're very disciplined. What does it mean to be a part of the kingdom of God? What does that culture look like? And Jesus is looking at this wide multitude of people from different backgrounds, from different cities and different places in their faith journey. And he says, when you come to the kingdom of God, we are going to be radically loving. We are going to be so loving that it's not just the people that are like you that you love. We are going to ask you to even love your enemies. And while we might read the Old Testament and read about how the Jews are supposed to love their enemies, this was not the case at the time that Jesus was born. We found uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls in the middle of the 1900s in the caves of Qumran. And in these scrolls, we found that if the Jews met with other Jews, they would be very kind and courteous to one another. But after Babylon came and after the Medes came and the Egyptians and the Romans, suddenly they recognized, you know what? We are not going to be loving towards our enemies. And so Jesus is coming back to them and reminding them, this is the way God has planned it to be. This is the way that I want you to act. This is the way that we are supposed to respond to those around us. Now we're going to cover a lot of ground today, but I think we need to pause right here and ask a really important question. Do people hate you because of Jesus or hate Jesus because of you? I've lived here in Canada my whole life, and I've never really received any level of persecution. I've had people make fun of me. I've had people be a little bit hard on me. That's it. But I have had people get really upset with me because I've been a jerk, because I've done something wrong. And it's one thing if people are mad at us because they don't believe in who Jesus is. It's a completely different matter if they get mad at Jesus because we're the ones who gossip, because we're the ones who are lazy at work. Because we're the ones they can't trust because we keep not keeping our promises. Because we take advantage of those who are less than us. Because we've been abusive in some way, shape, or form. For many of us, it can be a sobering thought, but it's a reason worth reflecting on. If someone doesn't like you, why don't they like you? Loving our enemies isn't this mere intellectual exercise. It's this active engagement of working with people who dislike us. And while these verses are just rich with depth, there's two ideas that I want to pull out. The first one is this. Pray for your enemies. It's so easy for us to be driving to a large family gathering and we say to our spouse or to our sibling, I hope that cousin isn't there. Because if she talks about how her being a pet owner is the same as us having kids, I am going to lose my mind. Or we talk about with one of our coworkers and we say, man, if that person, if that boss, if that owner shows up one more time, I am just going to lose it. But when we pray for our enemies, there's at least two things that take place. Yes, God is working in their lives in ways that we don't understand, and it's the mystery of God. But God's also working in our own hearts, in our own minds, in our own hands. And he's helping us recognize when we pray for our enemies, when we pray for those who do mean to you, that there is a way to respond. It's awfully hard to pray for somebody and then a moment later to curse them. This whole idea and this embracing your enemies talks about turning the other cheek. 
And sometimes we think about being punched in the one side of the face and we need to turn our face so that they can punch us on the other side, but that's not actually what it means. The idea here, the, the context is that to be insulted, it's more likely that they talked about being slapped across the face. And Jesus is saying, if somebody insults you, if somebody mocks you, turn your face and keep doing good to them. There's always going to be people who will mock you and mock your faith and, and not believe in what you believe in. But there are people who will see this person is loving. They've embraced me. Maybe you've told them that you're praying for them and suddenly their hearts start to change and they go, well, who is this God who you worship? And why is it so important for you to act the way you do? Second thing, practice the golden rule. Verse 31 might not be the most popular phrasing of the golden rule, but it's phrased in the most popular, uh, uh, positive way possible. How do you wish someone would treat you well? Go and do the same. If you were new to Canada, what kind of help would you want? Treat others the same. If you're sick with COVID, what would you like your neighbors to do to you? Go do for others. If you are financially strapped, what's the biggest help you would like from somebody else when you hear of that need? Go and be a blessing to them. One of the commentators who's been uh, very helpful throughout this series on Luke uh, phrases the golden rule this way. As you wish to be treated with sensitivity to your preferences, so treat others with sensitivity to their preferences. A few years ago, I was reading a missionary biography, and the man talked about how he had been put in prison and how the guards there were mocking him, how the guards there were beating him, how his um, co-prisoners said, why do you believe in such a God like this? Just repent, and they'll let you go. But he recognized, I have a captive audience. How can I show my enemies what love looks like? And so he started fasting. And he started asking God, how can I make a difference in these people's lives? And then he recognized while he was fasting that people were always complaining about the rations given to them. And so he took the rations that were given to him for every meal and he would go and share them with different people, hoping that by the love that he was showing them, they would recognize there's something different about this man. And he was able to lead dozens of his prisoners to faith. Jesus' teaching continues in verse 32. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies, do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your father is merciful. In a line, help the hurting. The ancient world often operated under the premise, do good to others so that they will do good to you. It was this whole idea of reciprocity. If your neighbor's wagon wasn't working, you would lend him your wagon because one day your wagon might not work and you'll want him to do the same. If you knew that a family was a little bit sick and couldn't feed themselves that day, you would bring bread to them, not because you love them, but because you're going to be sick one day, and eventually they'll have to do the same. And Jesus is looking at this big crowd of people, and he says, well, what's so special about that? Everyone operates that way, even the people you deem the worst in society. Shortly after Jesus went into heaven, the church in uh, the book of Acts grew exponentially. 
And yes, there was great teaching, and yes, there was miracles, but one of the big things that brought people to the new ch- this new church, this new way of living, was that they loved each other so radically in a way that was not accustomed to in the first century. In a world where so- people were so focused on their own needs, these people who followed Jesus were helping everybody. Are you sick? Come, we'll do our best to make you well. Are you hungry? We have food to share. Are you homeless? Come live in our homes. People were coming to faith because they were helping the hurting, and it was a total game changer. By the time we reach Acts chapter 6, that we have Greek widows and Jewish widows, and these Greek widows are thinking, hey, maybe I can come and, and I can earn some food or I can have some, them feed me in some way. What do I need to do to get that? And these Christians, these followers of Jesus are saying, you don't have to do anything. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. We are going to give you this food and we are going to help you see how great and how awesome Jesus is. To help the hurting is an overflow of embracing your enemies. And my friends, this is where it's gonna get a little bit uncomfortable. Enemies aren't always those who mock us. Enemies aren't always those who persecute us. Enemies may also be those who are different from us who frustrate us, who don't act the same way we do. And so you start looking around and you recognize when you drop your kids off at school, when you walk through the mall, when you're driving in the, on the highway, there's, that person doesn't act the same way I do. That person doesn't look the same way I do. That person isn't in the same social class that I am. That person doesn't have the same skin color as me. And at the very least, they frustrate us. And at the very most, in our darkest moments, we say, I just hate them. At best, a little bit of resentment. At worst, you want them out of your way. And Jesus is saying to you and Jesus is saying to me, stop thinking like the world thinks. Stop acting like the world acts. I'm giving you a brand new way to look, a brand new way to see. And if you have your Bibles in front of you, you'll notice verse 32 is about attitude and verse 33 is about action. Loving and doing good to people who love you and do good to you isn't special. Everyone does that. What's transformative, says Jesus, what's a total game changer is that we help the hurting when they don't look like us, when they're not in our social class when they don't have the same skin color, when they don't understand Canadian culture, when they're in financial need. And it's because of this prayer, because of the golden rule, because God is at work transforming our hearts, we find ourselves not only helping the hurting, but truly engaging with them, wanting them to succeed, wanting them to do better. And the more we get to know them, we realize we don't hate these people. We actually quite like these people. Before I came to Ellerslie, I was in a small town called Alberta Beach. It's about 45 minutes west of the city. And it was a really interesting church to be a part of because we had people who lived right on the lake of uh, of Alberta Beach. And they would have million-dollar homes and they would have very luxurious lifestyles. And two streets back, we'd have those who had nothing. Alberta Beach is a place where people will often run to, to get away. It's cheap to live there. There's an alcohol and drug rehab center. The rent, the mortgages, the homes are not highly priced if you move off the lake. And so on Sunday mornings, we'd have people who were extremely wealthy and those who were in deep need. 
And if you're like me, one of the questions is, but Dave, if we help people like that, won't they take advantage of us? Absolutely they will. But what was so neat about being part of that church is that the wealthy people would regularly give. They would find somebody who was trying to start a new business and just needed a couple bucks to fix up their uh, truck or to buy some new tools or hoping to start something out of their home. And the church would regularly give a few hundred bucks. Some people would give a couple thousand dollars knowing that they would likely never see that money again. Some people would stay in the church and fall in love with Jesus. Other people would take what they needed and walk away. But Jesus is saying, what's going to make you look different? What's going to show the world what it means to have kingdom values and kingdom rules is that when you give to those who are hurting, because that's what I'm calling you to do. Will it be hard? Absolutely. Which is why the next two verses are so important. This is talking about forgiving the failings, verses 37 and 38. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Over the last few weeks, when we've been going through the Gospel of Luke, I've been talking about our God being a holistic God, meaning he doesn't care just about your spiritual health. He cares about your emotional health, your relational health, your physical relationships as well. And I think we so often read these verses, and we're not wrong to say, well, if we don't forgive people, God says in other passages of Scripture, God won't forgive us. But there's something deeper going on here. Yes, this is true, but it's also true that if we don't forgive others, How are they going to respond to the good news of the gospel? There's this truth to that, and there's so much more. When we show grace and forgiveness to people all around us, they become more receptive and more open to the good news of Jesus and hearing about what Jesus is doing. You've probably heard me use this verse before. You might be familiar with it yourself. It's from John 10, 10. Jesus talking about Satan says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. Right now, the fabric of our society is being torn apart. There's bitterness, there's anger, there's resentment. And when relationships are broken, the enemy delights in it. You heard Joel pray about this just a couple of minutes ago. Forget what the government is doing. What are the ramifications it has across society? What are the ripple effects that are taking place? How many of us have had our friendships broken? How many of us have been having challenging family conversations? How many of us have been told that other churches are falling apart because people can't figure out how to respond in such a way? What's happening in our workplaces? That's not the way of the kingdom. Jesus says, I have a better way where we don't hold people down, but where we build people up. I think I shared this a little over a year ago, but Sid Coop introduced me to a line I've never heard before, and I've used it a lot during this time of COVID. When reality doesn't meet expectation, we can choose to fill that gap with grace or with bitterness. What happens when we criticize and fault other people? We're we're tearing them down. We're saying we're better than you are. And what is the likelihood that they're going to come to faith if we act in such a way? But what happens when we show grace and forgiveness? draws people in. When we forgive the failings of others, it gives them a glimpse of heaven. It shows them there is a better way of life. Forgiveness is saying, we're going to open doors wide open. We're going to tear the walls down and we're going to show them how great and awesome this idea of Christianity is and the person of Jesus. When I was in junior high, 
my family and I were on vacation and we were at a place in Kelowna camping together and uh, my parents got a phone call. It turns out my 12-year-old cousin died in a car accident. So my 12-year-old cousin was with her other set of grandparents and they were coming home on a single lane highway and a car was weaving in and out of traffic trying to pass people and hit my cousin and her car head on. Immediately, my cousin and her other grandma died on the spot. Her grandpa had months, if not a couple years of recovery. And if I recall right, the man walked away. I texted this particular cousin's sister this past week, and we were texting back and forth. And I said, remind me, am I, am I remembering correctly or not? She said, oh, no, you're remembering exactly correct. So if you haven't been to a, a funeral of somebody who died instantly before, it's a little bit different. Normally, when we go to a funeral of somebody in their 80s, there's 100, 150 people there. If somebody's 12 years old, is well-loved in the community, that auditorium is packed out. Neighbors are there. People from school are there. My uncle's co-workers were there, and their church family was present en masse. I remember sitting there with my sisters and my family and listening to the different tributes that were given, and suddenly my aunt and uncle walked up onto the platform. And in front of everybody, they said, we want you to know that we have forgiven the man who killed our daughter. And you can just hear this gasp in the auditorium. The Christians celebrate. This is what forgiveness looks like. My uncle's co-workers, their neighbors, their friends from school going, that is something different than I have ever seen before. But what is showing the world what Jesus looks like? Is it to judge, to tear down, to criticize, or is it to forgive and show love and mercy? And God is saying this is a kingdom rule, to recognize that there is life change, to recognize that forgiveness and mercy are real, and that is a total game changer. Engage your enemies, help the hurting, forgiving others, pull the plank. Then Jesus told them this parable, can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will be able to see clearly to take the speck that is in your brother's eye. In the first century, the ultimate goal of the student was to be like the teacher. It's not like today where you choose the school you want to go to, you choose the t uh, classes you want to take, you choose the books you're going to read. It's dramatically different. In the uh, first century, only the incredibly wealthy would have scrolls of their own. Even some of the synagogues might not have all of the Old Testament available to them because it was so expensive to have scrolls. So the entirety of your instruction was given by one teacher. So a student would follow a couple teachers around and find out who do they like? What kind of teaching do they like? Do they trust the way this person acts? Do they trust the way they interact with other people? Do they have high morals? That's the person that I want to follow. In some cases, the students would actually move in with the teacher, see how they interact with their spouse, interact with their family, how do they teach, how do they live their lives. With this in mind, you can see the importance of choosing the right teacher. And Jesus is saying, if you choose the wrong teacher, it's just like the blind leading the blind. Then, when left to your own devices, most of us are going to enter this idea of image management. 
We're going to make sure that when we compare ourselves to others, we are going to look good and we're going to find fault in other people. When I was in college, there was somebody who his mere presence made me feel inadequate. It seemed like everything I did, he did, he just did it better than me. And so we were hanging out at the soccer center one day and uh, he's, uh, I referee soccer and he referees soccer just at a higher level. And he says, hey, do you play as well? I said, yeah, I'm a keeper. And he goes, oh, me too. I play at the highest level in the city. I was the skinny blonde kid. He was tall, dark, and handsome. And then he said, hey, are, are you in school right now? You're what, 20, 21 years old? And I said, yeah, I'm going to school. I'm studying to be a pastor. And he goes, me too. And I said, you've got to be kidding me. Everything this guy does, he does better than me. I was trying to pick a speck out of his eye when I've got this whole honking big log in my own eye. Maybe you've heard the phrase from Teddy Roosevelt, comparison is the thief of joy. And you hear this verse and you hear this passage and you think, oh, I know somebody who needs to hear this. Yeah, I'm sure you do. And you need to hear it and I need to hear it too. We are so quick to point out faults in others. We rarely stop and recognize how deeply we need God's grace. Think about this. When you walk up to a mirror in the morning, maybe you're getting ready for the day, maybe you're stepping out of the shower, don't we kind of pick on ourselves? I know for me, I think, why is all the hair leaving here and growing on my nose and my stomach and coming out of my ears? That's not the way this is supposed to work. Why is my tummy looking different than it did a number of years ago? But if we look at the mirror this way, how often do we look at our spiritual lives? The Apostle Paul was a phenomenally moral and upright citizen. He wrote most of the New Testament. And he says this to his young protege in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Do I believe that Paul was the most heinous of sinners? Not at all. But I think when Paul looked at himself in the spiritual mirror, he recognized, what if I misspoke and I hurt somebody by what I said? Maybe I was just judgmental when I didn't mean to be and it pushed others away. How, how many times have I been selfish and put myself in front of others? What about us? Does our scarcity mindset compel you to work too hard? Is looking at a pornography destroying your sense of intimacy with others? Are you so set on being approved and accepted by others that it changes the way you act? Do you put others down so that you feel better about yourself? Is being a perfectionist pushing people away? Is your desire to be right at all costs destroying relationships? Is your pride preventing you from receiving feedback? And Jesus is saying, pull that plank. Make sure your heart and spirit are in the right place before you go and serve others. We've covered a lot of ground this morning. So now let's wrap this up. When Todd and Peg head over to Kenya, they need to be aware of how the culture works and embrace this new way of life. And if we were going to visit the Middle East or go to Asia or go to South America, we too would have to talk to people who live there, talk to people who hang out there and say, what does it mean to be a part of that culture? What do I need to do? 
And Jesus is coming down from the mountain where he spent a night with the Father. He's prayed passionately, asking God to lead him. Which disciple should he choose to follow him? And he's coming down from the mountainside and he's surrounded by this large group of apostles and disciples. And he says, this is what it means to be a part of my kingdom. It means that we need to embrace our enemies. It means that we need to help the hurting. It means that we need to forgive the failings. It means we need to pull the plank. And there's a lot to think about today. And I've covered a lot of ground. I didn't expect that I would preach the whole Sermon on the Mount. But as you look at that four-part outline, what is your role? Today, if you were to pick one thing, what is the one thing that you are going to do different? When you look at embrace your enemies, maybe you think, I need to pray for these people. There's somebody in my life, maybe it's a family member, maybe it's a neighbor, maybe it's a coworker. There, there's in your mind who you're thinking, I need to start praying for them. Maybe you look at that list and think, I really need to start helping the hurting. And today, right after the service, maybe you need to go home, have brunch with your family, hop online and say, what is a mission organization that I want to support? And I'm going to start giving $20 a month to that mission organization. Or we've talked about Adira, the Pregnancy Care Center, Hope Mission. I want to go down there and help. Maybe on the ride home, you know, my neighbor really needs a helping hand. Forgive the failings. Is there somebody in your life that you need to forgive? Maybe it's a family member who hurt you 20 years ago. And you're thinking, I've never truly forgiven them. Maybe there's somebody at work who keeps undermining you week in and week out and you just despise them. And you realize that there's this bitterness eating away at you. Perhaps you've heard the line, um, bitterness is like drinking poison, hoping the other person will die. And you need to forgive them. Maybe you need to pull the plank. Talking about Jesus' teaching doesn't mean we're talking about Jesus and this part is just awesome. This word, some of you will have plank, others of you uh, will have log. And this idea is a load-bearing beam. What you would put in your house to hold the most of the weight of the roof. And Jesus is saying, take that log out of your eye. Take that plank out of your other eye and give it to me. Because I'm going to tie it together in the shape of a cross haul it up to Calvary, crawl onto it up to my own doing, be nailed to that cross so that I will forgive your sins. Jesus is the one who embraces his enemies in a perfect way. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus is the one who is in absolute paradise in heaven, enjoying a perfect relationship with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. And his dad said to him, son, I need you to go down to earth and help the hurting. I want you to show them what forgiveness looks like, and I want you to show them how beautiful it is and that Jesus died on the cross to forgive us all our sins. Listen to how the Sermon on the Mount closes. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my word and does them, I will show you what he is like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood rose, the stream broke against that house that could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do what is like, um, is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of the house was great. Trust the teacher. 
Jesus is the one who is the perfect teacher to follow because he is the one who has embraced his enemies. He is the one who has helped the hurting. He is the one who forgives the failings and he is the one who pulls the plank and says, I forgive you for all you've done. And that's a game changer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the Sermon on the Mount. And recognizing we covered a lot of ground today, we didn't go into great depth in any of these areas. But we are reminded of the great teaching that you have. We are reminded that as people who belong to the kingdom of God, that there are new rules to live by and new rules to work in. God, may we look different. May we embrace these values. May we embrace these rules. And may we recognize that this is a great culture that is without border and with a great and glorious, perfect king. Please forgive us where we have fallen short. And by the power of your spirit, fill us so that we might live as good ambassadors for you. We pray this in Jesus' powerful.